0: Hello and welcome to episode number 61 of the Innovations podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com podcast, on Monday, August 24th, 2009. For this episode of the podcast, we are joined by Marisha Auerbach. Marisha has been practicing, studying, and teaching permaculture in the Pacific Northwest for the past decade. She is involved with many communities around Cascadia and is especially involved at the Wild Tim Farm, a 150 acre permaculture demonstration farm and FSC certified forest in the North Willapa Hills. Marisha, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you. So you've been practicing permaculture for many years, and permaculture is about many things, but it's primarily, as described by its founder, Bill Mollison, uh, design science. An important principle in permaculture is that of building connections. Could you talk about this concept and how it plays out in practice? Sure. Um, Well,
1: in permaculture... We um, look at all the different elements that we use in our life and then think about how to connect them together to increase the efficiency and um, relationship between them. Um, and through that, we can place things in our landscape so that, um, so that we can minimize the time spent to um, access these elements or to visit them. Uh, we can connect them with other elements so that um, they work well together. Um, For example, um, my herb garden is placed directly outside my door, so then I use more herbs in my life. You know, I um, tend to involve more herbs in my cooking. Uh, Likewise, um, you could think about where you choose to live and um, find a place that's close to um, your work. If you lived in an urban area or um, a place that's close to... um, Um, some favorite fruit trees or um, a place to grow food, and then you'll have more relationship with the outer landscape.
0: What is a perennial forage system?
1: Perennial forage system is my term for um, perennial landscapes where humans can return to be the foragers. So these are intentionally created landscapes that um, have a high food value where um, the plants are selected based on mirroring natural ecological functions in the forest. So uh, I'll go out and observe the forest to see what's growing there and what plants are similar in the native environment to plants that I can use in my life. And then I'll create an intentional forest um, using the plants that um, are most, um, appealing to me in my life, or appealing to my clients um, who ask me to design these systems for them, and um, because these systems are based on natural ecological functions, they require minimal work um, because I'm creating an intentional ecology, and then um, we can, you know, then we can have less work to do in the garden, and um, my premise is that we can return to be the foragers and appreciate this abundance in the landscape um, that is inherently designed in the system.
0: Now, what does that look like in your uh, part of the United States? What, what kind of trees and fruits and, uh, you know, things in your garden have you decided to work with?
1: Yum. Um, we've got a lot of apple trees and pear trees, um, some plum trees, Asian pears, cherries, peaches uh, in the landscape here, and quince trees as well. I love the quince. Then our um, shrub layer is um, a lot of currants and gooseberries. We have about five different kinds of currants and five different kinds of gooseberries. We have the yosta berry, which is a cross between the gooseberry and the currant. Um, we have raspberries and lots of blueberries, and um, strawberries are often a ground cover in our berry systems. Um, I like to grow a lot of um, vegetables that will naturalize. Um, so as, if you observe the native forest, you'll notice that there's a high amount of herbaceous perennials in the forest. And so we've got lots of different herbaceous perennials, both for edible qualities and for medicinal qualities. Um, loveage is it. one of my favorites the per- vegetable um, so I like to focus on perennials um, they're harder to come by so it takes um, it's been taking me years to collect different perennial um, vegetables to include in the landscape and meanwhile I've also been working on how to get our annual vegetables to perennialize and then what types of um, unique things um, are not known for their edible quality that that um, are very tasty and that I can incorporate in my diet. I also do a lot of um, herbal preparations, incorporating in food value and um, plants that can be used for medicine. Um, We incorporate in plants that can be used for cottage industries as well, for um, small-scale businesses, um, for selling food to restaurants or for um, making different products.
0: Now, you've done a lot of work with edible flowers, which I think you're getting at a little bit here. Can you talk about your work with edible flowers and share a little bit of your knowledge of this topic?
1: Sure. Um, When I moved to the wildfin farm in uh, 1998, I noticed that we had about 15 different kinds of edible flowers growing. And the amazing thing about growing edible flowers is that the more flowers you pick, the more flowers grow. It's the reproductive mechanism of the plant where... um, if the, plant, the plant's purpose is to reproduce its species. So when it produces a flower, um, that flower then gets pollinated and creates a seed pod. And so if you pick flowers, then the plant is encouraged to produce more flowers because it's trying very hard to reproduce its species. So it's a really fantastic um, Thing to do to eat flowers—they're very tasty and um, they continually reproduce more. The more you interact with them, so um, I've been developing that here over the years. We probably have about fifty different kinds of edible flowers now. There's a great list of edible flowers on my website um, with pictures for anyone who's listening who might be interested in trying eating more fl- and trying to eat more flowers. So. Um, Back in uh, 1999, um, I started selling edible flowers to restaurants, and um, it's really delightful to go to a nice restaurant and find um, some bright color from some amazing flower in the garden on your plate and um, to taste that delightful flavor, the subtle flavor of a flower. There's um, recipes also on my website, um, some different things that you can do with edible flowers. Um, I actually just started making some rose petal honey last night. I love rose honey.
0: So, tell us about thing. some of the other uh, flowers that you eat, and some of them are probably well known. Some of them are probably less or so. But just tell us about some of the ones that stick out in your mind and you know tell us a little bit about uh, how they're prepared and and how they taste when you eat them.
1: Okay. Um, The nasturtium is probably one of the best-known edible flowers, and um, I like to um, use the uh, the nasturtium in salads, or um, I just made some sauteed greens the other day, put a bunch of nasturtiums on top. We're growing the red and the orange and the yellow nasturtium. Um, Every year I like to make vinegar with the nasturtiums, and the vinegar will become a different color based on if you use the red or the orange nasturtiums or the yellow nasturtiums. So that makes a really fantastic gift for the holidays. Um, Some of my favorite flowers to eat are the larger petaled ones. They're more substantial in salads, and they add a really nice um, color to your salads. Um, I love to eat gladiolas. They're nice and succulent. That's a lesser-known flower. Um, Those I often use in salads, or um, I can... Stuff them with goat cheese. I'll make a herb goat cheese with um, thyme or rosemary and put it in the center of a gladiola flower. Sometimes I also make that goat cheese and put it in the center of a tulip or roll it up in the petals of a tulip. They're also nice and succulent. Um, squash blossoms are a fantastic flower for eating. And you can, um, with observation, you can learn to sex your squash blossoms. So you only harvest the male squash blossoms and um, leave the females to produce fruit. And then you can stuff those with goat cheese too or um, for vegans, vegan, some like to use tofu. Uh, And I really like stuffing squash blossoms and um, gently steaming them to get the goat cheese to melt and then serving them over a bed of tomatoes.
0: Yes, squash blossoms are something that we have eaten in the past. We don't have any squash this year, but we've eaten it quite a bit in the past. And uh, some people might not be aware that uh, there are actually, the, the squash plant has male and female flowers, as you just mentioned. Yeah. Can you just tell people who are squash growers who might not know that, how they can identify the male flowers so they can pick them and eat them?
1: The female flowers are more swollen at the base. You can tell that they're going to produce a fruit because of their quality at the base of the plant. I believe the male has uh, one pistil inside, and the female has multiple.
0: So, this is a good time of the year to actually be talking about this because the squash, uh, if you have squash in your garden, it's probably in full bloom right now. Uh, so go out and check it out and see if you can figure out the difference between a male and female flower. And if you can, it's not that hard to do, go ahead and pick those male flowers and uh, find some recipes on Marisha's website or uh, or elsewhere online and, and try it out. Uh, Marisha. Marisha, sorry. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. And it's also, um, you know, if you're not growing squash blossoms in your yard or um, where you live, then... Other neighbors might be, and they might not be using their squash blossoms. Um, I strongly believe in um, the dire need for um, humans on this planet to have this connection with our food system. Um, it's, It's strange, you know, how in this society right now, most humans are dependent on going to the supermarket to feed ourselves for our nourishment. And when you look at um the agricultural practices, even organic agricultural practices, um, there's a lot of um inputs that are coming from off site and um, the there's a lot that's needed to increase soil fertility. So the more, so I'm all about encouraging that connection with our food supply and knowing where it comes from and being able to steward the landscape so that we can tend to the land and know what's needed to promote healthy soil and um, a healthy system. So um, I'd encourage folks who don't have squash growing in the yard to make a connection with someone who does and to um, find somewhere where you can harvest your food, and there's usually surplus squash blossoms around.
0: Yeah, and I should also mention that I was not aware that squash blossoms were edible when I first started producing squash in my garden. And it was my father who remembered his great, well, who was my great-grandmother, his grandmother, preparing the squash blossoms, uh, and he just remembered that being a delicacy in his family. So another thing uh, that I would encourage people to, to do is talk to talk to the elders in the community about the foods that they they used to eat, and uh, it's it's turns out that's a great way to discover many edible plants or many different recipes that uh, that we have now come close to losing. I was going to ask you about um, some of your experience with flower essences. Now you, you just talked about your work with recipes and flowers and, and growing edible flowers, but you also make flower essences, which is probably something that has ancient origins, but seems to many to be somewhat an arcane art in today's cultural context. Tell us about flower essences. What are they generally, how are they made, and what are they used for?
1: Okay, well, flower essences are um, an extraction of the emotional qualities of a flower. So. When a plant blooms, its expression is contained within the flower. Um, that expression is a color, it's a shape, it's a certain number of petals, it's a direction that the flower is pointed. And these, um, these characteristics within the expression of the plant um, parallel um, ways that they can um, aid us in um, our emotional states as humans on this planet So um, I go out in the morning, and when there's still dew on the flowers, and I gather them and place them in a clear glass bowl filled with water, Um, and then the flowers infuse in the sunlight into the water, and that's um, a flower essence. And then I take out the flowers, and I bottle them with an equal part of brandy, and that's what's known as the mother remedy. And from the mother remedy, um, the bottles that I sell are stock bottles, and I take three drops from the mother remedy and fill the bottle um, with half brandy and half water. The brandy simply used as a preservative. So that's how potent the qualities of a flower are. And flower essences have been um, used since ancient times. Um, Pliny the Elder, uh, Hippocrates, um, Shakespeare, all of these people have um, been documented as using flowers, um, Dr. Bach um, popularized the flower essences in the early 1900s. He actually used to go out with a little dropper and collect the dew off the flowers, and that's um, a very potent quality within the flowers. So um, flower essences can be used for emotional um, transformation. Um, they can be used for um, for... Um, motivation, for inspiration. They can be used um, to help deal with loss of a loved one or um, for uh, interacting with others for um, seasonal affective disorder. And it's usually emotional qualities that flower essences are used for. You'd use something like a tincture for more physical qualities.
0: Now, how what, what is the difference between a tincture and a flower essence?
1: A flower essence is extracted in water and preserved with brandy, and a tincture is extracted in alcohol,
0: Okay. usually
1: vodka or grain alcohol. So um, brandy is used for flower essences uh, because it's higher vibrationally than grain alcohol. It's kind of like the difference on if you were to eat oatmeal in the morning for breakfast or have a fruit smoothie. Brandy is usually made from fruit. And um, it just is lighter, and so it holds that vibration, that special vibration of the flower better. And its flower essences aren't as strongly alcoholic. Um, they can be made without alcohol. They can be made with apple cider vinegar, or um, if you're going to be um, ingesting them um, immediately, then or short, you know, with a very short shelf life, then you can omit the alcohol.
0: So some also pe-
1: you can um, put flower essences in tea, and then the alcohol evaporates.
0: Okay, so some people are going to go out there and probably make their own flower essences. How do you recommend, you just talked about putting it in tea, but what are some of the ways that people actually uh, consume these?
1: Uh, I sell them in dropper bottles, half-ounce dropper bottles, and you take three drops four times a day. The most important time is right before you go to sleep and right when you first wake up in the morning because that's the time that your conscious mind is closest to your subconscious mind. And flower essences work by um, helping us break emotional patterns.
0: Okay, so people who are interested in that, I encourage you to to try it out if you haven't tried it. And if if you don't want to go through the process of making a flower essence, I'm sure you can visit Marisha's website, which of course we'll link to in the show notes for this episode, and pick yourself up some flower essences. Do you sell those via your website?
1: I do. I sell them on my website. I have a line of flower essences. I have a line of gemstone remedies, which are made with the full moon using crystals. And then there's also um, two different lines of varroa mists, which are combinations of essences and gem essences and essential oils. And those are in a two-ounce spray bottle, so you spray them on your face.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the FSC-certified forest in the hills uh, near your farm and talk about what that is and uh, the importance of that in your farm system.
1: All right. Um, we have 100 acres of forest here at the Wildtime Farm. Uh, we've been FSC certified for a number of years now. So FSC stands for Forest Stewardship Council. And so we've submitted a farm plan for our forest to the Forest Stewardship Council and how we're sustainably managing the forest. And what we do is we pull out diseased or dead trees or um, trees that are competing with others and um, manage our forest quite like a garden, um, a diverse polyculture garden. And we have a mill on site, and we mill our own lumber here.
0: And then you use the lumber for construction? Or do you sell the lumber? Um, We
1: use it for construction, and we market our lumber. Um, We also market um, some high-value timber products like um, shelves or benches or mirrors um, that are made with the wood hooks as well.
0: You have your own carpentry there as well?
1: We have um, one person who lives here who does carpentry, yes.
0: Okay, well that's great. And so you're harvesting um, hardwoods mostly or softwoods?
1: We have a very diverse forest. Um, we were when the forest was clear cut in the past, um, before um, before the current owners, um, it was cut in sections. And so each section um, wasn't replanted. So over the years it um, was seeded in with the original seed stock of this area. So we're harvesting um, all native trees and um, that is uh our big our big tree is um spalted alder. So that's the um, red alder tree. Um, it often has a spalt going with it, which is a fungal um, reaction. And it causes this beautiful um, black marks within the wood. And so it's a really high quality, beautiful, ornamental um, wood that comes out. And we also have um, quilted maple, or tiger's eye maple, um, from the big leaf maple trees. Lots of big maple trees here. We're also harvesting Douglas fir. Grand for Western Hemlock, um, and the Wild Cherry. Yes, well, Occasionally, one of our old fruit trees comes down, and then we have fruit wood as well.
0: There in the Pacific Northwest, you guys are really blessed with uh, just amazing forests.
1: Yeah. Yeah, our soils are good. They haven't been exhausted or tiring yet, and we just have such beautiful woodlands here. We're so blessed. I think that... Um, For folks that are interested in sustainably harvested wood, I think this is really important to look at. Um, The forest is an expression of what the land wants for a natural ecological system, how to really care for the landscape. And in many parts of the country, the forest has been destroyed over years, and um, it's so precious to have a good example of what a natural ecological system looks like in your area so that you can learn how to steward the land in your area. Um, And then being able to um, have a model here um, where we have a beautiful forest that's intact and we're still able to glean wood out of it to have a um, forestry business, Uh, it's pretty amazing. And um, I was just on the top of our hill the other day with some friends and we're looking out from our fully forested hillside that has yielded all of this beautiful timber and you can't even tell that we've cut trees in this forest. And we're looking out across the way at the hillside next, uh, the next hillside over. And we're looking at this clear cut. And the land has just been degraded. It's been um, stripped of habitat. There's massive erosion going on. All the animals have been displaced. And most of the timber that was cut was probably immature. It takes um, the first 50 years of a cedar tree's growth is just getting to size. And then from 50 to 100 years, it bulks out and gets the rot-resistant qualities that are needed um, for what cedar wood is prized for. So um, some of, a lot of that has been lost in mass production and the value of really knowing what natural ecological systems look like and um, what, what plants have to offer in their full expression when they can fully mature to the age that... Is their full expression um, is so valuable, so valuable.
0: That's absolutely right. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, actually, my background is in forestry. Uh, my my formal training is as a forester, so I I do have some uh, knowledge about this topic. And one of the things I noticed now, I studied uh, in some of these eastern hardwood forests in uh, the upper peninsula of michigan where it's transitioning to the boreal forest towards canada but one of the things i noticed is when you go into the uh preserved areas in other words the areas where there's no management going on whatsoever and there has actually been no timber harvesting uh you know in any recent memory in the past two or three hundred years uh the first thing you notice is the diameter of the trees i mean the trees are just huge and one of the other things that I noticed is the abundance of fungi in the forest, something that you do not see uh, with the same regularity in a managed forest, even a forest that's being sustainably managed. Uh, it just jumps right out at you that there's just there are just fungi everywhere. So there are some, you know, qualitatively different things about... Unmanaged forests, and it's just so important for us to maintain forests that are not under any kind of real direct harvesting management at all. So, like you said, that we can go back and look at these forests and see how they behave in the absence of, uh, you know, timber harvesting and other extractive management practices.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, when we look at fungi and what they have to offer as well. Um, there's numerous medicinal qualities that fungi have to offer that isn't offered by any other species in the plant kingdom. And especially as we um, have these increased diseases come out, like the swine flu and the avian bird flu, um, certain species of fungi that exist in the old growth forest have been shown to have the highest activity um, to boost our immune system to prevent um, uh, to prevent being affected by these diseases, um, specifically uh, Trimedes versicolor, the um, turkey tail mushroom. Uh, so it's so important for our health um, as a species to recognize and honor the old growth forest or um, the forest as it evolves and all the kingdoms
0: within it. Yeah, and I would also draw our listeners' attention to a previous interview on the Innovations podcast with Paul Stamitz where he talks about uh, differences, intraspecies differences, in other words, different varieties of specific species of mushrooms actually show different levels of activity against different kinds of viral infections so that uh, we may preserve one area of a forest and preserve a species by doing so. But we may in fact wipe out a subset of that species and therefore wipe out the antiviral properties uh, associated with that. Now let me wrap up by asking you um, one final question about community. Permaculture, as you said, is about building connections, and it's also about redefining our relationship with nature and with one another. How have you personally used community as a resource in furthering your own goals and ideals?
1: Oh, wow. I am so fortunate to be involved with so many fantastic people in communities um, all over the world, really. Um, there's so much to learn from all this diversity within um, humankind. So, oh, my goals, wow. Um, I, I just feel so fortunate to be working with many different places and many different um, landscapes and expressions um, throughout the world. Um, I've been to Vietnam and worked with um, folks from the Hill tribes there. I worked with um, people who represented 13 different communities in the Hill Tribes in Vietnam and learned about how they relate with the landscape and what they like to grow and what their cultural identity is like. And um, recently I was just down in the desert, um, in, uh, uh, down two hours in the hills from Santa Barbara and um, observing what's happened since the forest has been cut down um, there and um, desertification and how friends at Quail Springs um, community are working to um, create perennial forage systems um, in the desert to help um, restore the water table and grow food to support their needs. Uh, I've been out to Washington D.C. and worked with um, Bread for the City, the local food bank out there, um, networked with folks I just saw posting from the student, um, my student Liz Falk, who brought me out to Washington D.C. Um, just saw posting on Facebook that she harvested 150,000 pounds of food this year um, in support with Bread for the City um, to um, support the local food banks. Um, and then I work with um, numerous intentional communities and um, around the Northwest, including Lost Valley Education Center, Try and Life Community Farm. Um, and folks have been saving farmland and turning it into places for education where we can learn how to grow food and um, in our communities and be able to have that connection with our nourishment. Um, fortunate to teach permaculture certification courses all over. Um, and the next one um, booked that still has um, space available is December 1st to 15th at the Lost Valley Education Center in Dexter, Oregon, outside of Eugene. So for anyone who's interested in learning more about permaculture and um, intentional community and um, education centers of this sort, that's a fantastic opportunity coming up this December.
0: Well, Marisha Auerbach, thank you so much for the great work that you do. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us on the Agro Innovations podcast, and uh, keep on doing what you're doing, and we are part of a community that is worldwide, and the more people I talk to, the more encouraging it is. There's a lot of positive things going on out there, of course, to go along with a lot of the negative things as well, but uh, we just have to keep doing what we're doing and keep supporting one another.
1: That's right. If we keep up the positive vibration and focus on the positive, it gets stronger. We're almost together. It's so great to work together. Thanks for calling.
0: That concludes my interview with Marisha Auerbach. And I'd just like to extend my gratitude to Marisha for participating in this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. I do want to let our audience and listeners know that I receive a lot of show suggestions from listeners, and I keep track of the vast majority of those. And I am going to make a better effort in the future to keep track of 100% of those. Uh, I think I come pretty close to that, actually, in keeping a list of show suggestions. And I'd like you all to know that I have contacted many of the people that you have suggested that I have on the Agro Innovations podcast. And some of those people uh, do not respond or are not interested in participating. And some of those people will have been and will continue to be featured on the podcast. So if you have sent out a show suggestion, I don't actually follow up on that by saying that I contacted this person and they got back to me or I contacted this person and they never got back to me. Uh, I do not have time to do that. I do want our listeners to know that I greatly appreciate the show suggestions that they send, and I do follow up on those. And if you have not heard someone that you suggested, uh, don't despair. Keep sending in the suggestions, and I'm sure that we will get a hit on that very soon. Now... Upcoming, I have uh, some people who are actually suggested by listeners of the Innovations podcast, so stay tuned for that. I'd also like to remind listeners that we are on Twitter at twitter.com slash agroinnovations. And I also have a Facebook page, uh, Frank Aragona is my Facebook So if you are on Facebook and want to add me, you can get uh, updates about the podcast and about the agro-innovations and things that we are thinking about and working on as well. This and all episodes of the agro-innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. And I am not going to continue to post links to the global Swadeshi forum as i just not had the kind of interactivity and feedback that i would like in that forum i have found some other online uh forums that discuss agriculture and the like and perhaps i will consider starting up some threads there and linking there if any if any listeners have any suggestions where we can get an active uh forum community going around the issues and themes that we discuss in this podcast I am more than open to suggestions. Let me conclude by saying the Agro Innovations Podcast is now in collaboration with Red House Art Radio, which you can find online at RedhouseArtRadio.org. Red House Art Radio is an innovative online internet radio stream that has a whole line of innovative and interesting programming uh John Steinman from Deconstructing Dinner, who was on this podcast. Uh, they are also broadcasting Red House Art. Uh, they are also broadcasting Deconstructing Dinner via Red House Art Radio, and then they have comedy shows and a number of other great shows that are being streamed live on their webpage, including the Agro Innovations podcast. So I encourage you to go check that out. I will link to Red House Art Radio on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Thanks so much for joining us. Saludos.